right, so welcome, formal welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. Um, we have a conversation today. We're going to start our conversation with a talk about, bot, with an exploration of body language. If you saw my email last night, so you saw that I wrote there about body language. So it, it's the, the concept is that as much as we communicate through verbal communication, right? Hey, Steve, good morning. So as much as we communicate through verbal means, by what we say, we're also communicating non-verbally as well. So there's what we say, and then there's our body language. And sometimes they're consistent. Hey, Steve. Sometimes they're not consistent. And here's what I mean. Sometimes somebody could be saying something happy and upbeat and loving or whatever it is. And the, their whole essence exudes that message, right? Their face, their body, maybe their hands, like everything is, is completely there and communicating the same message. But sometimes, sometimes a person could be saying one thing, but their body is saying something completely different. Okay, here's what I want to do. Let's do a very quick exercise. Um, raise your hand if this has ever happened to you. If you've been speaking with somebody and they're telling you and they're sharing something verbally with you, but your sense about their body language is it's completely different. It's a completely different message. Has that ever happened to you? Yes. Yes. Have you ever been the one on the other side? In other words, have you ever been the one giving those mixed messages of saying one thing, but non-verbally communicating something else? Yes? Like, I just communicated about, about, about verbal communication. Meanwhile, I was opening some LaCroix for my son, who's almost as into seltzer as I am. It's a close competition, right, Ellie? Yes? Okay, good. Right, so nonverbal communication is huge. In fact, there are studies, and, and I'm sure, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but, but it's important to talk about this. There are studies, many, many, many studies, that talk about the importance of how we stand and how we present ourselves. If you're going, if you're, you know, in a job interview, how, not only what to say, but how to say it and how to say it without saying it, right? How we hold ourselves, how we, how we hold our bodies, how we articulate, gesticulate, I think that's the right word, how we do all these things, if it's not, I apologize, how we do all these things is very important as far as communicating what it is that we want to communicate. And again, it's not about only sharing information, it's really about presenting ourselves. And a lot of that is done non-verbally. By the way, I'm not talking about miming. That's for another class. The Kabbalah of mimery is a, this is a mimer. This is a discourse. This is not about mimes. It's a completely different topic. I don't mean miming. What I mean is, or um, what's that other, what's what, when you like act out a thing and what's that game called? Not Pictionary. Charades. Charades. Charades, yes. Or in the correct form, what is charades, right? What is charades? So, this is not about charades as much as it is about our bodies sharing oftentimes what it is that we're really thinking, 
what it is that we're really feeling. So we try to mask, sometimes, sometimes we try to mask our emotions, mask our thoughts, but our body often does a good job in betraying the mask and revealing how it is that we really feel. So for example, we want to portray, let's say in a job interview, right? We want to portray an, an aura or an air of confidence. But our body may be, and we might be saying the confident words like, yes, I believe that I'm the right person for the job. But it's possible that our bodies will be conveying the complete opposite message, which is why there are coaches and there are seminars that will actually teach you and I how to, how to improve or whatever, how to tweak our body language to give off a sense of confidence, um, competence, whatever it is that we want to give off. All right, this is not a plug for a seminar or a workshop or a book. I'm just saying that this thing, that this is, this field exists, the science of studying body language, the science of hacking body language, if you will, and the notion that, so these things exist, and most importantly, body language is a real thing. So, one of the, one of the important findings in, in the field of body language is that body language doesn't only affect the other. Body language actually can affect ourselves. Hey, Ellie. I've, I've spotted an Ellie in the background. A rare, a rare Ellie. So, um, body language is not just telling for the other person. Body language is also can also influence us, ourselves. Here's what I mean. And this is well documented. If you are standing with more confidence, even if it's about making the other person think that you're confident, at some point, you will actually feel more confident. Because the way our body is, is, um, is shaped actually has an effect on us. I'll give you one of my favorite examples of this. This is like, of all the studies that I've seen, this is like one of my favorite studies because I, I, just, I just love the concept. So I have a toothpick. Very, very uh, fortuitously, I there was a toothpick, in front, a toothpick holder in front of me. So I just extracted a toothpick, okay? I feel like I'm doing a magic trick. This is a normal toothpick, right? Do I need to call over a trusty assistant to corroborate? No. All right, so this is a, a toothpick. So here's what the studies have shown. This is, I'm shifting away from general body language into the field of positive psychology, really the art of happiness, which, by the way, I need to mention, was not a field that long ago. Psychology, for most of its lifespan, right, since psychology first be became a thing, um, was Freud the father of modern psychology? Can we say that? Yes? Is that accurate? Yes, Freud? A right, nice Jewish boy from, uh, I think, Vienna or something. Anyway, so Freud, Freud... Um, no, so for psychology, for most of its, its history, has been about studying the problem. It's about like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? What, what, where does it come from? Blaming our parents. Like, it's all the negative stuff, right? And then, recently, there emerged a new field called positive psychology. Unbelievable positive psychology. 
and that field is booming because instead of pointing out all the problems, the goal of positive psychology is to focus on the good stuff and how to increase our happiness quotient, increase the joy in our lives, which certainly we could all use. So here's a study that has arisen from the field of positive psychology. I've shared this study before, but I love it. I can't get enough of this study. And it falls into, it also fits into our conversation about body language. They tested individuals. They took people and, and, and you know, they had people brought in for, for an experiment. And what they did was, what they did was, one second, guys. What they did was, they gave them a pencil. Now, I don't have a pencil, I have a toothpick, but it's the same concept. They gave them a pencil, and they told them, yes, oh, this isn't, was, this wasn't the Rosh Kodesh, okay, cool. So, they took a pencil, and they said, hold a pencil. You have a pencil, a real pencil. Who needs a toothpick? <laughs> I trust the assistants, right? So, they said, hold the pencil, like this way in your mouth, between your teeth. Okay. And they had people do that for a certain amount of time. And then, after that, people didn't know why they were doing that. They just thought it was, you know, who knows, part of these uh, wacky experiments. And then they, they were asked a bunch of questions, which secretly, these questions were designed to, um, to tell, their happy, to, to indicate the happiness quotient of the people being interviewed. And then they took a second round of people and they had them hold a pencil differently in their mouth. They had them hold a pencil like this. Wait, wait, hold on. The first one was like this. Okay. The second one was like this. See the difference? Yes. And then they asked them a, a series of questions, which was going to be very telling about their happiness quotient. So let me just demonstrate group one and group two. Group one. Group two, so the difference in the shape of the mouth is that group one kind of it almost lift it, not almost, it lifts the muscles into somewhat, not a full, but somewhat, at least a half of a smile, right? Whereas the group two, it creates sort of a mouth pout, right? It creates like a pout. And the results came in. And wouldn't you know it? By far, those in group one, when they were asked these questions that obviously are not like, oh, rank your happiness in a scale of one to five. It was obviously, you know, a little bit more, you know, sneaky questions that were able to tell the researchers, their indicate their level of happiness. Bottom line is group A scored in the happiness ranking much higher, more happiness than group B. And this is but one study of many that have shown that our body posture, how we hold our body, is not just, um, uh, doesn't just, is not just influential on others, but it is profoundly influential on ourselves. How we shape our body affects how we think and how we feel. So when we are standing in a more confident posture, we begin to feel more confident. Right? When we stand in a less confident posture, we can feel less confident. When our mouths are in a happy posture, we become happier. And when they're in a less happy posture, we can become less happy. Now, there's no guarantee, of course. Right? There's nothing that's set in stone, and your mileage may vary, and there's lots of gray areas. Always, these are all the disclaimers. But the point is, the body language is very powerful. Well, wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? 
Body language is actually discussed in Kabbalah as well. And today we are going to explore body language from a perspective, from the position of Kabbalah. But first, let's talk about education. This is a really important idea. And the example that I want to use is education. It's a, it's a go-to example, just to reflect on the analogy that I'm about to use. When you study Kabbalah, you notice that a few, type, a few classic parables or analogies come up. You, they, one favorite is king and subjects. That's a huge one, right? It's all, you know, there's a king, a subject, maybe a king and a prince. There's always like, you know, that type of analogy. And then there's another favorite, another classic go-to, is teacher-student education. So let's do one of those teacher-student analogies. So let me give you a scenario. Imagine the teacher walks into a room and there's two students there. Student A, or let's forget two students. Let's say a teacher walks into two different classrooms. In classroom A, the students are sitting at their desks. All right, I mean, obviously this is pandemic notwithstanding, right? They're sitting at their desks and they're attentive and their, their body language is open and welcoming the knowledge and the information. They're nodding, they're smiling. I don't know if smiling is a thing, but I mean, it is a thing, but right? They're, 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 they're visibly engaged and engaging. That's scenario number one, classroom number one. Classroom number two, the teacher walks in, greeted by folded arms, right? Kind of like, I dare you, to, we dare you to teach us. Like, go ahead and try. But not even in a fun way, more of like a grumpy way. <laughs> like, not like, you know, hey, it should, this should be fun. Let's see what can happen because that's still open. This is like you walk in and it's, and it's closed off. So I want to ask you a question. You're the teacher. Classroom A Students that their body language gives off the impression that they're open to learning. Classroom B, their body language gives off the impression that they're not so open to learning. You're the teacher. Here's my question. Where do you think, which classroom environment, where do you think, in which classroom do you think you will be able to deliver a better lesson? Not what the students are going to learn more or less. That's, up, that's partially up to them. But where will you deliver a stronger lesson? Classroom A or classroom B? Please weigh in on this super softball question. What do you think? A. <laughs> I love that. Classroom A. Ding, ding, ding. Why is that? Why is that? So in, Kab in Kabbalistic parlance, in Kabbalistic language, we call this the dynamic of mashpia and mekabel. I'm going to write in the chat right now the two words, okay? Mashpia, okay? And mekabel. I want you to learn these terms. Again, you can take a look at the chat. It should have popped up. If not, then you're on a device and you have to dig deep into those settings to find the chat. Mashpia, mekabel. So what is mashpia? Mashpia equals giver. And Mikabel 
equals receiver. That's the way it is. Mashpia is the giver. Mekabal is the receiver. Life is essentially a series of Mashpia and Mekabal experiences. Every conversation is Mashpia and Mekabal. Think about it. In every conversation, somebody's talking, somebody's listening. The talker is the Mashpia, the, gi the giver or the communicator. And the listener is the Mekabal. Now, in a good conversation, in a healthy dialogue, right, each one, each party is taking turns being the Mashpia, and each one is taking turns being the Mekabal, right? Yes. I'm ready to do some Mekabal, by the way. Totally ready. Somebody jump in here, right? So the point is that, right, when we speak or when we're communicating, we are the Mashpia. We're the ones that's giving. We're, we're the ones who are giving. And then when the other person is speaking, we're the ones who are being mekabel. We're the ones who are, who are receiving. It's not a static relationship. It's a dynamic relationship. Which means that each one affects the other. And the, the more obvious form of, of effect is the giver to the receiver. I mean, that's the obvious one. It's obvious that the giver affects the receiver because literally the giver is giving to the receiver and that's something that's new, right? Let's say it's something that the, that the receiver didn't have or didn't know. That's something new. So, of course, the mashpia is affecting the makabal. But the giver is, is, is affecting the receiver. But the big idea here in Kabbalah is that it works the other way around as well. The receiver affects the giver and one might argue the receiver affects the giver in a greater way than the giver affects the receiver. Got a question for you? Yeah, Yaakov, go ahead. Um, so, um, just to weigh in on the, the classroom dynamic, um, uh, there was a, I had a teacher, uh, and he would uh, gauge at the beginning of the week. He would gauge the um, how much the the students were willing to work, right? And how they were really, really uh, willing to actually dig deep, and he would literally. Um, he, he, would, he would change uh, what he would teach and how much he would teach. He would either give us everything he had or he would just kind of like cruise through the weekend, uh, check his emails, etc. Right. Uh, based on what he gauged in the very beginning. And you could change his, uh, like somebody was coming in late to, to each, each uh, little mini class and I, I caught him and, and he watched me catch this guy and I kind of literally saved the class one time because he was watching to see if, you know, the, the class itself would uh, self-manage. Yeah, right. So, and, and, and right, it's a it's a powerful uh, real life example. So, look, it, it's that so and and this ties into what we're saying about Kabbalah, kabbalistically, the mekabel, or in this case, if they're plural recipients, mekablim, the receivers, recipients, plural, affect dramatically the mashpia, the giver. That's the way it is, right? The receiver affects the giver. Stated very simply, if the giver senses that there's no one to receive, then there's no motivation to give. Are you with me on that? I'll say it again. If the, if the giver senses that there's no recipient to receive, then you're not going to give as a giver. So, for example, you have a cup. Yeah? When you see the cup is open, you're more inclined to pour. If the cup is upside down, you're not going to pour. It, it, it's, it's, it's not complicated. It's kind of obvious. When you sense someone out, it could be, 
let me just pause for a moment and say it could be that one's assessment of the other, are they open, not open, interested, disinterested, might be wrong. So it, it, it's, there's no foolproof science to this. It, it could be wrong. It could be a mistaken assessment. You're, again, it's, it's, we're dealing with human beings who are judging and assessing based on limited knowledge and awareness. But when a person senses, whether right or wrong, when a person senses that the other one is closed off, not really listening, not that invested, not that engaged, they're, they're less likely to really give their all. Whereas, that's like classroom number two, whereas if they sense that the students or in any conversation that the other party is open and listening and, 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 and receptive, then you're more likely to give and to share and to really be invested. Now, I need to tell you the next piece of this. So, hold on, before I go to the next piece. Make sense so far? Right? Pretty, pretty, okay. So again, in Kabbalistic language, there's the mashpia who's the giver, the makabal who's the receiver, and typically we think that it's one influence the other top down, right? The giver is influencing the recipient. But in truth, in Kabbalah, we understand the dynamic is also reversed. How the makabal, the recipient, actually affects the giver. By the way, this is what we do on Rosh Hashanah. According to Kabbalah, this is the whole avodah, the whole service of Rosh Hashanah, which we've talked about countless times. And that is that we, the recipient of God's life, we turn to God and we say on Rosh Hashanah, we are open to you being our king. Please be our king. In other words, we want a relationship with you. We are receptive. We're open. And when God senses the receptiveness, then God reinvests this, the ne this year, th that next year, once again, in creating the world and sustaining it, both the, the, the macrocosm as well as the microcosm of our own lives with the blessings that we need. I don't want to get a deep dive into, into Rosh Hashanah, but Kabbalistically, this is called Binyan HaMalchus, which means building Malchut, the energy of Malchut. Malchut is God's sovereignty, which is built by the people. Ein Melech below Am, you cannot have a king without a nation. In other words, you can't give without a receiver, without recipients. So on Rosh Hashanah, we tell God we're receptive. And then God says, you're receptive? Then I'll give. So, life hack, if you want your teacher, that's again, it's not, about, it's not about these classes, but in general, if you want someone in, in, in conversation to be more open, to, to share more, whatever, there's a, there's a power in how we listen to almost draw that forth from the other party. In also, a uh, field that's studied a lot nowadays is active listening. And active listening, there's an art to listen. It's not passive, it's active. Active listening means that you're engaged in the listening process. Essentially, active listening is another form for exactly what we're talking about. What are the benefits of active listening? It's not just that when I'm actively listening, I'm, I'm assimilating the information better into my brain. That's also true. But what's, I think, even more important is that through active listening, you're encouraging the other party to share and to share deeper than they would share otherwise. Does that make sense? Yes? Yes? When there's active listening, when you are demonstrating that you're engaged, that you're excited, you're learning, you're listening, you want to know, you're, you're checking in, you're giving feedback the, the, with, 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 in the process, so the other party, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a, it's a peer, or a colleague, whether it's any conversation, is going to be more inclined, more encouraged to keep on sharing, to share deeper, to share bigger ideas. 
And the big idea here is, one of the big ideas is, that active listening actually can evoke from the, the other party depth of wisdom and, and insight and, and emotion that they themselves did not have prior to the conversation. It's the recipient, the, mash, the Mechabel, that can bring out even greater powers within the Mashpia that the Mashpia didn't have without the Mechabel. Sorry for using a lot of Hebrew words. The recipient, through being a good recipient, can actually bring out and evoke and elicit greater powers, greater depth from the giver than the giver had on their own having not this communication, which is why there was a great sage in the Talmud who said, I learned a lot from my teachers. I learned, I learned even more from my colleagues. But I learned the most from my students. And it's not just because the students asked the hard questions, which is also true, but it's because in the process of, uh, in, in, in the process of teaching, when there's an active listener, right, it actually draws forth greater powers from the giver, which means that the role of mechabel is not static, but is dynamic. The role of recipient is not passive cup, pour into me, I'm open, but it's dynamic. And it can change the nature of the relationship even in that recipient role. Does that make sense? Which is why in Kabbalah it says that malchut, which is, symb- which is the lowest, I said it's sovereignty before, but it's the lowest of the 10 sphere of the 10 powers. And it also represents the cup, Kabbalah, it's called the cup. It's the recipient energy. It's why Malchut is also the most dynamic. Because the, receive, the, the, receiver, the receiver actually triggers the dynamic element. Kabbalah uses the analogy of the earth. The earth is the Mechabalah's recipient. We all step on it. We put seeds inside of it. So it might seem like a passive recipient. And yet... The growth happens from the earth. Vegetation, life is born from the earth. So that which seems to be just a passive recipient turns out to be a very dynamic part of this, uh, of this larger picture. So getting back to conversations, communication, education, so the recipient doesn't play the student, if you will, in the case of, of education, doesn't simply play a passive role. Listening, learning, you know, either yes or no, plays a dynamic role, can drastically affect the teacher. Make sense? Yes? Okay, let's take it a step further. The Talmud says there was a rabbi whose name was Rabbah. That was his name. Oh, that's what he was called, Rabbah. Rabbah means teacher, like Rebbe, Rabbi, Rabbah. Rabbi also means great. Maybe he was a great teacher. He was definitely a great teacher. One of the great sages of, of the Talmudic era. And the Talmud relates that, that Rabbah, before he would begin teaching, he would share a milsa de bedichusa. He would share a joke. He would open with a humorous remark. And badchi rabbanan, and the sages would laugh. And then he would begin teaching. This has become a favorite of many rabbis to follow throughout, the, throughout the, uh, the generations, right? You start with a joke, and then you go into the lesson. Kabbalah asked the question, what's the deal with the joke? What, he didn't have enough material to fill the whole lesson? What's with the joke? He told the joke, 
the rabbis laughed, and then he shared the lesson. This reveals perhaps the most important part of today's conversation, at least this opening part of the conversation. What happens when you walk into a classroom, classroom B with arms folded, disinterested students, they're not really interested, they're not really listening, right? They're like, hmm. What happens if you're the mashpia, you're the giver, but you notice that the receiver is not really open, so you can say, let me know when you're ready. Or until then, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna skate through it. I'm just gonna go on autopilot, not really be invested because I don't, I'm not working with anybody. It's not what Rabbah did. Rabbah created the Kaili, created the vessel. In the language of Kabbalah, if there was no opening, he made the opening. And what was the opening? Humor. Because humor creates receptivity. You with me on this? So you think it's rabbis sharing dad rabbi jokes, right? Bad dad rabbi jokes, which is a killer combination, right? <laughs> Not in a good way. The truth is, there's incredible Kabbalistic wisdom behind it. And dare I say, let me take you behind the curtain for a moment. It works. 100% it works. What does a joke do? A joke, even if it's a terrible joke. Honestly, if it's terrible, sometimes it creates more empathy. It's, it's, it's even better. Yeah, it creates a connection, but more importantly, it creates a receptivity. The other party is listening. They are open. You walk in cold and you might be hitting opposition. You might be bumping against. It's not, it's not yet open. You know, when you're planting, I'm not a farmer, but let me pretend that I am. Yeah, when you're planting your field, you got to plow the field first. You can't just drop seeds into the hard earth. You got to plow it a little bit. So a, bad, a, a joke, right? A joke does a little, does, uh, does the plowing. Yeah. Lake Chabad. I love it. So the, the, um, the plowing is able to create the receptivity within the earth, within the recipient, and that allows for the seeds to go in and then produce the growth. So what's the point of all of this? The point is it's dynamic on so many different levels. Let me quickly recap the points that I've made. Number one, body language is important for ourselves. How we hold ourselves, right? The posture that we're in affects, radically can affect our mood and our thoughts, our feelings, etc. It also affects the other. In the context of education, a standoff, not a standoff, it doesn't have to be so dramatic, but a kind of a closed off posture, right? And I don't only mean physical posture, but just the, the aura that a person gives off of not really being so invested, so open, will affect the teacher as opposed to one that is open. Well, I guess they'll both affect the teacher. So being more closed off, the teacher, the mashpia, may not give as much or as deeply, and it's not going to stir and trigger the deeper insights of the teacher if the teacher is not feeling that there is a macabre to receive. Whereas when the teacher senses, feels, knows, right, realizes that there is a recipient that's open and listening, active listening, we spoke about, the, 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 it, it, the student is open, it evokes energy from the teacher and evokes ideas and feelings and new insights from, from the teacher, from the communicator. This is not only true in education, it's true in, in conversation as well. And then the final point that I just made, I'm just quickly recapping what we've done. The final point is that if the mashpia senses 
that the Makabal is not so open, then it's the, it's the responsibility of the Mashpia to help open the Makabal to make the, the Makabal more receptive. Right? One should not say, well, I tried, but they weren't receptive. It's the job of the giver to also help the receiver become a receiver. In other words, part of education is to teach students how to be a student. Does that make sense? If you're teaching kids, part of maybe one could argue the most important role of education is to teach students to be curious, to want to learn, to question. It's not about giving the information. It's about creating a receptivity and openness within the other that then will automatically and organically be filled by you as the teacher and by life itself as the greatest teacher of all. Does that make sense? So, again, there is, the, there is what we would call the apparent immediate role of the teacher, and then there's the larger meta role of the teacher. So the apparent role of the teacher is to communicate the lesson plan. But the larger role is to create a student. The great teachers create students. The greatest teachers don't convey information. The greatest teachers create a curiosity, an openness, a willingness to learn, a need to learn within the student. And that is a lifelong gift. Because 2 plus 2 is 4, yeah, it goes... Well, it's very important. I don't, want, I don't want to knock two plus two is four. It's really important. But, you know, there's... But being open to learning is the greatest thing. In fact, our sages say in Pirkei Avot, ethics of our fathers, Ezehu chacham, who is wise? Halomeid mikal adam, one who learns from every human being. Rabbi Ari, what? thank you. Yeah, sure. I, I, I want to say the, uh, the idea of creating an opening in the receiver is not only something about teaching, but it also relates to sales. Creating that need in, in, the, in the buyer, right? Yes, yes, excellent, right. So we find this in many different fields, right? If you're selling and the other person is a little bit like, yeah, I don't, I don't really need that. So part of the effort is to create an openness to, uh, to, 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 to listen, yeah? So the goal is not just to convey the information, but to create that receptivity, that overall receptivity. And it's, an, it's incredibly powerful. So it, what I'm saying is it's working both ways, right? The, the, the posture, not just physical, but the, the overall posture of the, of the recipient affects the giver. And the giver affects the recipient. It works both ways and it crosses over multiple ways. What we're going to do today is we're going to explore all of these concepts that hopefully make sense on a very human level. My goal is always to start these classes with language that you and I can relate to, contemporary language, contemporary examples, things that make a lot of sense and maybe are helpful in our own lives and our own relationships and communications. And then, now the goal is to apply it to the cosmic realms, to understand how this is the same dynamic that plays out with regard to God and the universe, and the divine energy that enlivens everything. So, I think we're about to jump into the, um, the, the higher application um, and, uh, and see how this plays out as well in the cosmic realms. Okay, so I am opening my book. I'm also going to share my screen with you.
Can I ask you a question, Rabbi? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, you said we're, we're kind of like the ground, and then and with the soil, it, it seems like it's it's inert, it's inanimate, and yet it uh, produces the tiniest seed. It, it produces entire forests. Right. So if we're if we're the the soil, you know, if we're the uh, the receiver at this point or the student. Um, how do we, because each one of us are, are limited in our comprehension and our uh, reception of, you know, the, the beauty of life even and the gifts of life. Um, how do we, um, you know, if we feel like there's, let's say there's uh, a lot of debris, you know, or we can't see the light or we're in the forest and we're at the bottom with a bunch of stuff you know, leaves and stuff on top of us, you know, how, how do we become more fertile and how do we become more... Excellent question. Excellent. That's like, that's, 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 that's Yaakov, that's a great question. It's a million dollar question. And I think the answer is you come to Kabbalah and Coffee and that's it. That's what we do Sunday morning as we get the week started. We, 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 we dig, we dig and we don't just go into the week with um, coffee and cheesecake and, uh, and emails. We go into the week with, with Kabbalah. And, and we work on ourselves and we dig deep and we look to understand how we work and how we think and how the soul works and how God operates within the world and how God operates beyond the world. And the idea is to kind of break down the, because it's so easy to just jump into things and become cynical about life and whatever, but this is a way to become sensitized to the forces that work within, but also without, which is, I think, a perfect segue to, to jump into the text. So let's jump in right now to 62. <laughs> By the way, we're going to get into non-human reincarnation in like the next few minutes, which is going to be a wild topic. But let me explain why we're doing that. Um, okay, so what he's saying here is, let's get back to the, to the spiritual application, right? We spoke about the human application. Let's talk about the spiritual application. So, Actually, let me stop sharing for a moment and let me just tell you quickly the spiritual application and then we'll read it inside. So he's saying that the way the soul operates within the body is that the soul illuminates the body and the body receives the light and the energy of the soul and therefore the body becomes alive. So when you talk about mashpia makabal, giver and receiver, a great example of this is soul and body. The soul is the giver. The body is the receiver. The body is a good recipient to the soul, at least for a certain amount of time. The body is a good recipient for the soul. And the soul operates in the body in a very obvious way. Again, the greater receptivity of the recipient, the more dynamic the giving is going to be, right? The recipient affects the giver. The more dynamic the recipient is, the more dynamic the giving will be. So now let's jump in and see what's going on here. For example, look what he says here, for example, the soul is clothed in the organs of the body and the physical organs are subservient to the soul, obedient to its every command. In other words, I'm adding in, in other words, in other words, the body, right, we're saying the body is obedient to its every command. That means that the body is a good recipient. The body is the ultimate macabre. The body is the ultimate recipient. If you want, I mean, again, assuming the body is healthy, assuming everything is healthy, when you want to move your arm up, it, you, 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 
there's no hesitation, right? You want to take a step, you take a step. Again, assuming the body is healthy, it's immediate. The moment the soul desires movement, the body responds. That is a perfectly symbiotic relationship between soul and body or giver and receiver. The, the, the influencer and the influence. The soul is influencing the body. The body is being influenced immediately. In other words, let me stop sharing for a moment, what we would call um, resistance. There's no resistance in the recipient. Think about a speaker. We've all had this experience, right? A speaker cable that starts to go out because you bent it too many times. You know what I'm talking about? And now your music cuts in and out and it crackles. Not because it's a record player, right? But because, but because it's, um, right, the, there's, the, the, the wire's compromised. Maybe you have headphones and the headphone thing, the headphone uh, wire was, was bent a little too many times. So it cuts in and out. There's resistance. A healthy body does not provide resistance to the soul. Rather, the soul flows through the body in an obvious way. Hey, Adam, welcome. So it flows through the body in a very obvious in a very um, transparent way so that it operates hand and glove perfectly. Again, at some point, that, that relationship breaks down and the body does provide resistance more and more and more until such point that, uh, that, that there's too much resistance. But a healthy body doesn't provide that resistance for the soul's desires, for the soul's movements. Now, let's take a look why. Uh, this is third line down in exile of the soul. This is because the light, listen to this, the light and vitality of the soul radiate in a revealed manner and are palpable within the body's organs. You see that? The, the soul is radiating in an obvious revealed manifest way and it's palpable. It's, it's, you can feel it. You can sense it within the body's organs. So they are totally subject to the light and vitality. In other words, because the soul is, is shining so much within the body, the body can't help but go along with the soul. So this, this weights the influence. Next, next chapter, we're going to go the other way, like I said before. But this right now, first, the first approach is to, to put the weight on the giver, right? When the giver is really animated and manifest and open and, and, and revealed, the recipient can't help but be totally drawn into that experience and totally move with the flow of that light. But take a look at, the, at, the, uh, at this next sentence. But where there is no such illumine, illumining, right? When, that does not, when the soul does not illuminate like that, then the clothing, that's metaphorical, is not sub, the body is not subservient to the soul. In other words, if this, when the soul is operating and shining, so the recipient almost can't help but follow along. But when the soul is not shining, yeah, then the recipient, the clothing, if you will, the body is not subservient. So, for example, if a person is bound in a sack, the sack is not null or subservient to the person. In, in Hebrew, it would be bottle. So, um, when, if a person 
is in a sack, right? The sack does not flow with the person. On the contrary, the sack provides resistance to the person. So think about the old relay race, right, when you were a kid, and there was the potato sack race. Remember the potato sack race? Where you, were, you jumped into a potato sack, and then you had to hop? Yes? It's been a few years, right? So, yeah, you, you were hopping with it in a potato sack. So the point is that the potato sack is not conducive to the human body or to the human soul. Therefore, there's a little bit of a, um, of a friction of resistance. Therefore, one could trip and fall because it's not a completely symbiotic relationship. So soul and body works well. The soul shines. The body is, is a good recipient. The soul is a good giver. The body is a good recipient, at least on a biological level. And everything flows through the body. But take a body, take a person, and put it into a sack. It's not, it's not the right... It's not the right recipient. To use our education example from before, imagine Einstein teaching second grade science. It's probably not going to work out. I mean, maybe Einstein could also teach second graders, but assuming that his mind is operating on his own level, he's not going to be able to communicate to second graders, which means that you have light but you don't have a receptive recipient or you don't have the right recipient for that light. It's a mismatched experience. So that, what that does is it actually prevents the light from shining in an open way, right? When you don't have the correct recipient, then the light itself doesn't shine the way it should. So when the body is in the sack, it's not operating the way it should. Not only is the sack providing resistance, the body itself is not operating the way it should, and this will now play out in reincarnation, which is a topic that we actually covered this past week in our Journey of the Soul class on Tuesday nights and Thursday. But this is a, a pr profound topic in Kabbalah, the idea of non-human reincarnation. Take a look. The same is true of reincarnations. If a human soul is reincarnated in an animal body, that body is not subservient to the soul because the person cannot be revealed there. It is not investiture. The soul is not invested in the body, but rather imprisonment, like a person who's bound in a sack or in a jail. Such a person or soul is in exile, for it has no revelation there. It is simply incarcerated and fettered there. Hence, the animal's body... In, this, in the case of non-human reincarnation, the animal body is not subservient to the human soul. This is an extremely fascinating topic, but also extremely important to understand the extent that this, uh, that this plays out. Again, let me tell you the example that he's using and then explain the larger topic very briefly. The example that he's giving is simple. He says, imagine you take a human soul that's, that's designed for a human being, and that soul goes into, God forbid, into an animal, right? Into a body that's not fitting for a human soul. This is not, by the way, this is not a, a knock against animals. It's just, it's, it's not the same. It's not the same body, right? It's not the same recipient. So you have now a soul, a human soul, and an animal body. It's a mismatched relationship. So what, what happens? Like I said before, what happens when 
What happens when the recipient is not a recipient? The giver is not going to be a giver. Right? That's the whole thing that I tried to establish before. When the recipient is not a recipient, the giver is not going to be a giver. Now, unless you say that the giver is going to tell a joke and then the giver is going to make the recipient a recipient, but it doesn't work like that exactly when you're dealing with human souls and animal bodies. It doesn't work like that. You can't, it's not like the soul can tell a joke to the, to the cow. <laughs> oh, and then he said, move over. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, everything's fine. That was the punchline to an, an unknown joke. But I felt like, oh, no. All right. If Steve is giving me a thumbs down, I know it's really bad because Steve is very embracing and very um, sympathetic to my humor. So that must have been really bad. Oh my gosh, you did it. You did it. You reclaimed it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You've, you've lifted it back up. So here's the point. Yeah. There you, there you go. There you go. So what's the point? The point is you take a human soul, you put it into an animal body. It's not the right. It's not, it's not the, the soul is the light and the body is the vessel giver receiver it's not it's a mismatch so the light so if you don't have the right recipient the light's not going to shine so it's not so here's the important piece it's not just that it's not going to be functional it's not just that the soul is shining but it's hitting resistance the fact that there's resistance means that the soul's not going to shine does that make sense when the teacher again in a simple example when the teacher walks into the class and the class is not listening. The light emanating from the teacher is not the same light. When a soul, a human soul, encounters a resistant body, a body of an animal, its own light, the light of its soul, will not shine. You take a person, God forbid, you put them in a prison. It's not just that their light their energy can't radiate outside the confines of that space. Even in that space, they're not going to be shining. Now, again, your mileage may vary. It could be a person does find that to be a conducive place. Fine. But I'm giving the example. I'm using the example that he's giving. Right? Though, what is exile? What is the condition of exile? Not just that the light is trapped inside the four walls of this exile, so to speak, but that since it's trapped, the light itself won't be revealed. That, yeah, does that make sense what I just said? Yes? So that's how the recipient affects the giver. That's how the body affects the soul. How the vessel ex uh, um, affects the light. Now, let's talk about non-human reincarnation for a moment. I mentioned this last week. In our, actually, our Tuesday night um, uh, Journey of the Soul class. We didn't do the Thursday because of the fast day. Um, very simply, souls can be reincarnated due to various reasons. Essentially, when the soul has not um, completed or fulfilled all of its soul sparks. These are topics that are way beyond today's conversation. I'm just going to mention it very briefly. Um, the soul is, is reincarnated, not the same soul, but there's a, there's a, a grafted soul from that soul. And there's a, there are multiple um, opportunities given for those soul sparks to be reclaimed. If after a number of attempts, there's not been any progress, then that soul, or not the soul, but the soul sparks are invested in a non-conducive environment 
to act as a cleansing process for the soul. It's frustrating for those sparks of the soul. And it's been given opportunities, ample opportunities to, to manifest itself and to, to fulfill its mission. Um, after that, there's a, there's, uh, the opportunity is actually withheld from the soul. But that, that, um, that um, discomfort itself is what polishes and purifies those sparks. And eventually it goes in a good place to where it needs to go. That's the very short version of it. I'm sh- this probably raised more questions than answers. But that's the short of, the, of non-human reincarnation. The point is, it's not a comfortable experience for the soul. It's just simply not a comfortable experience for the soul, for a human soul. Somebody asked me in our Tuesday night class, well, you know, could it be when a dog saves a life that maybe, you know, the dog had a human soul inside of it and that's why it did something noble. Not according to Kabbalah, right? We, dogs don't need human souls to do something noble. A dog's own soul can do something noble. Doesn't have to have a human soul. Dogs have plenty of good souls for themselves. A human soul going into a dog's body would not be comfortable for the soul. And the soul's light could not even shine in that environment. That's the whole point of, if, if, that, if that's not clear by now, then I've, then I've failed for this, uh, this, uh, this, this first hour. The whole point is that when the recipient is not, is not a recipient, then the giver is not going to be a giver. When, when, the, when the body is the body of a, of a, of a dog, of an animal, the, soul, the human soul is not going to shine. The light of the soul is not going to be manifest. It's not that it's manifest. It's, 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 the battery's there, but it's not, it's not working. It's not, the, the body's not... It, it's a, it, it, the light of the soul itself is not going to shine. All right, back inside. Let's, uh, let's, let's see where we're up to in our text. Okay, so what we did here is we talked about a healthy scenario where the body is a conducive recipient for the soul. And we said in that case, the soul shines, right? The soul radiates in a reveal manner. It's felt, it's a perfectly symbiotic relationship. The soul is shining. The body is receiving. The soul wants. The body responds. Everything is working perfectly um, in concert with, 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 with each other, both sides giver and receiver, light and vessel, soul and body. But there are relationships where that doesn't work, where there's a breakdown. A body in a sack, a person in prison, a person in exile, or, God forbid, a human soul in an animal body. In these cases, it, not only is the body not going to work, the, way, the body will work like an animal, but the body is not going to work like a human body, but the soul is also not going to shine because it has no recipient for it. Like a teacher who's not going to truly teach if there's no one listening. Let's continue inside. This can help us understand. Now let's get back to the real cosmic source of all of this. This can help us understand how the, how, help us understand how the realm of holiness, where the divine light and vitality are revealed and where there is an awareness of the divine, is in turn nullified before and subordinate to godliness. The Sitra Akra, however, where the divine is not revealed but exiled, is not subordinate to godliness. So we've been, the last several weeks, at least three or four weeks, we've been talking about two realms of existence. What we call in Kabbalah Kedusha versus what we call in Kabbalah Sitra Akra. Kedusha is holiness. Sitra Akra is that phrase right there. Sitra Akra means the other side. So there's holiness, and then there's everything else, right? What is holiness? Holiness is that which is transparent, 
to what God wants. It doesn't get in the way. It doesn't obstruct God's light, God's will, God's desire, God's purpose. It doesn't get in the way. It is completely transparent. So, for example, a mitzvah is holy because a mitzvah represents what God wants. It doesn't get in the way, right? Tefillin, phylacteries, if you will, tefillin are holy. They don't get in the way of God's will. They are God's will. So, God's light can shine in the mitzvah. It's revealed through the mitzvah. It's a beautiful relationship. There's no obstruction. There's no um, resistance. Sitra Achra, however, right? The Sitra Achra, oh, that's a different case. The Sitra Achra is, uh, is completely different. That's the side that stands opposite God. God is not revealed. God is exiled. It's not subordinate to godliness. It's not receptive to God. Now, I should tell you, as I said last week, this is not a force that opposes God on its own. This is a force that God created to hide His own presence and to provide resistance to what He wants, to what God wants. Because God valued for us free choice, God said it's important for human beings to have free choice and to feel accomplishment in getting to a destination as opposed to it being easy. So from point A to point B, if it was very easy, there wouldn't be significance. But because there's so much resistance, there's so much darkness along the way, that makes the journey meaningful. So therefore, I need to create that darkness. I need to create the sitrach or the other side to provide the foil to my own plan. So God is invested in creating the sitrach, but not directly, more indirectly. God wants it, but wants it only in the form of opposition that it should be bypassed and not actually be engaged in. We did this at length last week. I don't want to go over it because it's, it's a topic that's its own full topic, which, again, we did last week. The point is the energy in Kedusha and holiness, is, it flows through in an unfettered, unobstructed way. In Sitra Achra, the energy doesn't flow through. Yes, it exists, but the energy is exiled because... The recipient is not a recipient. It's not a holy... It's, the recipient is not transparent to its source. If it was transparent, you know what it would say? Don't choose me. Keep on moving. Keep on walking on your destination. But it doesn't. It says, choose me. Isn't this good? Doesn't it look good? Won't this feel good? What could go wrong? Try it once. Right? It's flipping that sign. It's got neon flashing signs. Right, It's got the whole thing. The arrows are pointing toward it. It points to itself. That's not holiness. That's Sitra Achra. Sitra Achra stands... Now, again, God created it. It's intentional. But God doesn't want us to choose it. The thing itself doesn't reveal its truth. It hides its truth. And that means that the divine light inside of it is not shining. Because if it was shining, then it would be obvious. You would see it, you'd be like, oh yeah, no, that's wrong. Man, I don't want that. Yeah, I could see what that is. Yeah, that's dark light. That's not, that's not bright light. We don't see it. It looks bright to our eyes. That's because the Sitra Achra conceals the truth of its concealment. Not only is it concealing the light, it conceals the fact that it's concealing. If it was open about it, you would say, oh, okay, that's evil. I'm not going to touch it. But it hides the fact that it hides the fact. Right? It hides the fact that it hides God. That's the double concealment. Not only is it concealing the truth and the purpose, but it conceals the fact that it is concealing. 
Um, I hope that didn't get too confusing with the double concealment. Make sense? Thumbs up? Anyone will do. There you go. I got one. All right. Now, let's continue on to, I hope this stuff makes sense. I, th I, think, um, I think it should make sense. Let's continue with the next chapter because it's, it's straight up a continuation of this and it's going to further solidify the ideas, the themes that we spoke about today thus far. Here we go. The reason that godliness does not reveal itself within the Sitra Akra is because it, the Sitra Akra, is not a vessel for godliness. In other words, why is it that God doesn't shine in evil? Because evil is not a vessel, appropriate vessel for godliness. Again, God created it, but God created a non-appropriate vessel. That's the point. God created it to be inappropriate, to be not a vessel for godliness. Oh, we got a double the. Hmm, got to speak to the editors here. The, the, the realm of holiness is intrinsically, oh, so now let's talk about holiness on the other side. The realm of holiness is intrinsically an appropriate vessel to godliness. So the divine light and vitality radiate within it openly, as we said a moment ago in the previous chapter, right? Because the vessel is a vessel, the light is a light. Because the recipient is a recipient, the giver will be a giver. So when holiness is open, right? Holiness is like that student that's ready to go. It's like, yes, please teach me. So you're like, yes, I will teach you, right? So holiness, the realm of holiness is receptive and it's open. So the light, divine light, radiates within it openly. This is similar to the aforementioned example of the human soul which is clothed and functions only in the organs of a human body. So a human soul fits a human body. For it is the body, a human body is the vessel that's fit to harbor a human soul. So when you have a human body that's receptive to a human soul, the human soul connects with the body and says, Oh, you're a human body. Let's rock and roll. We're ready to go because you have a vessel to work with. You have a recipient that is appropriate. The effects of the soul are therefore evident and palpable within it, right? The soul now operates openly and obviously within the body. Since the soul is revealed in the body, the body is subject to the soul. So the next point is, since the soul now is revealed within the body. So again, it goes back and forth and back again. So the, the body is an appropriate vessel for the soul. Therefore, the soul shines within the body. Therefore, when the soul shines within the body, the body is even more conducive to the soul. Does that make sense? Let's go back to education. I got to share this. I got to share this. You ready? Education. The student can't wait to learn. The student is eager to learn. The teacher senses that. So the teacher gives it his or her all. Everything is shared and new ideas are shared. And then... The student connects with the teachings. The student was ready to, to learn. But now that the student is getting the, 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 the information, now the student is really connected and listening and, 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 and plugged into the teacher. And now it's a, self a positively self-feeding cycle. You want to say hi? Mm -hmm, but I want to go back. You can, but say hi quickly because everyone needs a little Riva good morning wave. 
One more time. There you go. Love you. All right. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. It goes from the teach, from the student to the teacher, back to the student. The student is receptive. So the teacher teaches. And when the teacher teaches in an open and radiant fashion, the student can't help but even be more enthralled by the teacher and be more connected to the teacher and be more, I'm using the language of, of this text, subservient, not subservient in a negative way, but more open to the, the, the teachings of the teacher. That's the way it works. That's how this symbiotic relationship works back and forth. And again, we missed out the first part which is the teacher can help the student get to that place of receptivity. So let's add four pieces to it, four steps. The teacher tells a joke to make the student open. The student is open, now the teacher is open. The teacher is open and teaches and the light is shining now. The student now becomes even more open because the light is there. How are you going to be closed off to the light when the light is there? You see how that's working, yes? Does that make sense? Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And again, it's a self generating positively self-feeding cycle of, of goodness and connection where there's an initial connection and then a deeper connection and an even deeper connection and even deeper connection. And the more that that relationship flexes, the more that that keeps on happening, the closer teacher and student get and the more trust there is and the more, the, the, the more that they, 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 they fit together, so to speak, in a perfect union of, of sharing ideas. That's the way it works. So getting back to this example, sorry, getting back to the analog, in other words, the spiritual component to this, it's the same thing with body and soul. So you have a human body that's appropriate for the soul, for the human soul. So the, the soul, therefore, shines in the body. And because the soul shines in the body, the body is now even more locked into the soul because the body is shining, the soul is shining. So the body is open, so the soul shines, so the body is even more open. And that's why he says this, I'm just explaining this line. Since the soul is revealed in the body, but why was the soul revealed in the body? Because the body was open to the soul. But now the soul is revealed in the body, therefore part three happens, which is the body is subject to the soul. Subject means, I don't like that word, but subject means it's even more open and it will follow what the soul wants. So the soul says, lift up your arm. It's immediate. The arm lifts up. The soul, let's continue here. The soul can be revealed and clothed in the body to the point of the body benefiting from actual life. That's the extent of this, of this relationship. The extent, how close is this relationship? That literally the body becomes alive because of the soul. That's how close that relationship, between human body and human soul. It's such a tight relationship that the body becomes alive from that soul. An animal body, however, like we said in the previous chapter, an animal body is inappropriate to the human soul. Hence, the soul is not revealed in it, and as a result, the animal is not subservient to it. All three parts, right? It starts with the recipient. The animal body is not a good recipient. Therefore, if you don't have a recipient, you're not going to shine, so the soul doesn't shine. And because the soul doesn't shine, the animal is not subservient to it. So it starts off, whether, the first question is, is it a keli or it's not a keli? I'm using Hebrew for vessel. Is it a vessel or it's not a vessel? So if it's a vessel, then the light's going to shine. When the light shines, the vessel becomes even more open. But if it's not a vessel, then the light's not going to shine. 
then the vessel certainly is not going to become subservient to the light that's not even shining. That's why, getting back to the example that it's not a fun example, but getting back to the example, the extreme example, and I should have mentioned this before, it's very, very, very extreme and um, not a frequent occurrence that a reincarnation, a human soul would be reincarnated in an animal or any non-human form. Could be a plant also, theoretically. Um, but it's extremely rare that that would happen and also extremely painful for those pieces of the, of the human soul that find themselves in that space. But in that case, the animal would not be subservient to the soul. Right? It's not like suddenly the animal is going to start moving with the spiritual energy of the human soul. It won't because the soul is not shining because the body is not the right body. So it starts with the appropriateness of the vessel. The vessel's appropriate, the giver will give, the light will shine, and then the recipient will be even more locked in. But when you're not dealing with a vessel, the light's not going to shine, and then there's definitely not any locked inness that happens. Let's get back to the, to the realm of holiness. Again, if this seems like it's going back and forth, exactly, that's the point. One affects the other, and then that one in turn affects the original party, right? So, receive, so let's say A and B. A is the giver, B is the receiver. B affects A, and A in turn affects B. Oh, oh, I should mention, sorry. It's a cycle also when the student is not interested in learning, right? The student is closed off, student's not a vessel, so the teacher's not going to give. Well, if the teacher's not really going to give, then the student is definitely not going to want to learn. You with me on that? It's a self-defeating cycle, or not self-defeating, it's a, it's a, it's a losing cycle. It's a, it's a, it's a, losing, it's a, it's a, it's a negative cycle, right? So the student comes in, mm, so the teacher is like, eh. So the student's like, I wasted my time. It just feeds itself. Whereas when the student is open, the teacher is giving, the student's like, this is amazing. So a human soul meets an animal at a bar. No, I'm kidding. Human soul and an animal body. Yeah. Animal body's like, hmm. Human soul's like, well, forget it. Animal soul's like, so what is this thing? That doesn't work. Whereas human soul, human body, the human body says, Ready to go. Human soul says, here we are. The human body says, that's fantastic. I'm locked in. And everything works, hopefully, and functions the way it ought to. Let's continue. By the way, any questions, comments thus far? Yeah. Yes, about the, uh, <clears throat> the animals that we have in our lives that actually seem on a different level. Like there was one colleague we had. We couldn't put our feet on her when we were watching TV. She would... The only one that had that kind of like self-awareness that this is an insult. And she'd like, the heck with that. And she'd get up and she'd run away. And um, can't, can't be a human soul, though, because a human soul can't operate within, a, within an animal. So it had to be an evolved animal soul, which, by the way, to me, is a, a greater credit to the animal. Why should we say that the animal's only credit is when there's a human soul in it? I, I think that, that's, um, that's dismissing the animal. Let the animal be... An evolved animal. Anyway, that's, that's, that's just my take on it. Not my take on it. That's literally what we're learning here, that the, a human soul in an animal, not, the, the human soul is not going to be able to express itself. It, it will literally be trapped and exiled and will, uh, and, and will not be able to function. Adam's asking a great question. According to Kabbalah, what does a human have to do to be reborn as an animal? So I mentioned that very briefly because I have a whole class, literally a whole class on that that we just did last week. Which is, um, which is a big conversation. 
But very quickly, it's not a whole soul. So, so Judaism does not believe in reincarnation as a whole soul coming back down into a body. It's only elements from a soul, specific potential or sparks, if you will, in the language of Kabbalah, of the soul that need to be perfected and refined and polished. So it's given multiple opportunities to join up or to, to generate a new soul and then polish those pieces up. If after three reincarnations, which means four times total, the soul, those sparks, not the whole soul, but the, those sparks have not had any progress, then the rectification, the tikkun, is to exile it. So sometimes something is repaired by fixing it. Sometimes something is repaired by breaking it. Not breaking it totally. I don't mean to say it so harshly, but by... Look, a person can be motivated through positive encouragement or through um, also through the negative. Again, I don't want to harp on the negative piece of it. Uh, yeah, challenge. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. So the fact that the, the fact that um, Adam wrote in the in the chat suffering. Right. So I mean, so the fact that the soul now cannot express itself, that pain itself, is a cleansing experience, a cathartic experience for the soul, and then hopefully quickly. The soul is able to, or the human soul is able to, to depart from that, from that space. It's not, it's, it's not a positive experience for the soul. That's why I'm trying to discourage the, or trying to share the Jewish perspective. We don't believe that the loving, kind, generous, beautiful animal had a human soul. Because a human soul would be incredibly suffering in that space and it would not manifest itself in that way. It's a beautiful animal. It's a beautiful animal with a, with a, a beautiful animal soul. All right, let's ca continue inside because there's a, there's a little bit more that I want to do. And um, we have just a few minutes left. Take a look at this, at this paragraph over here. Um, similarly. Similarly, the realm of holiness. Right? So now we're going to talk. We talked about animals and humans and human souls and human bodies Let's get back to the cosmic realm. Similarly, the realm of holiness, which is essentially a vessel for godliness, right? That which is holy, th this is the definition. That which is holy is a vessel. That's the definition of holiness. Holiness is essentially, is, is by definition, a vessel for godliness. That's why, that's why it's called holy, because it's a vessel for godliness. So, the realm of holiness which is a vessel, therefore it triggers within the giver the openness. It enjoys true revelation of godliness within it, right? A student evokes the full teaching, the full light of the teacher. So holiness, which is open and receptive to godliness, it's a vessel, enjoys true revelation of godliness within it, and therefore, in turn, it is therefore totally subject to him, subjugated, buttle to him. Again, one, two, three. It's a vessel to God. Therefore, God's light shines. Therefore, it is now totally on board with God. Because it started off as a vessel, the light shining, and now that's, it. that's, that's all it wants, that's all it needs, that's all it has, that's all it, that's all it is. So be, and, 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 oh, and, and, and then it's a self-feeding cycle in a good way. And now because of its bittle, because of its nullity before him, now the revelation is even greater within it. You see that? So it's, op it's receptive, so the light shines. It's now even more receptive, so the light shines even more. And again, it just keeps on 
growing and developing. Because of its nullity, the rev no, it's such a, I think in English it's a little bit of an awkward phrase. Because it is so transparent, if you will, before the source, the revelation is even greater within it. And the divine light clothes itself in its inner aspects and unites with it. So it's completely integrated with the realm of holiness. God's light and the realm of holiness, Kedusha, completely are integrated with each other. And it's because the vessel, it all begins with the vessel. Right? Is the vessel, is it a vessel or is it not a vessel? It's a vessel, now you got that closeness. However, on the flip side, the Sitra, Achra, which is essentially not a vessel for godliness at all, it's not a, no fault of its own. That's how it was created. It's not a vessel by design, right? Because of its source and manner of its creation, right? It, it's not a vessel Though by creation, by design, it's not a flaw, it's not a fluke, it's not a glitch in the matrix. It is absolutely by design. God created vessels and he created anti-vessels. Why did he create anti-vessels? Free choice. To make the vessels more meaningful. To give other opportunities, other, other, other options of choice. Right? As we've been discussing many times. So God created the anti-vessel called the Sitra Achra. It's not a vessel because of its source and manner of its creation. It lacks any subservience or general preparedness for divine light. It literally is not a vessel for divine light. No one's judging it. It's not like, ooh, bad sitra It's not bad. It's, it, it is what it is. It's not a vessel. Therefore, let's skip the, the references, right? He's referencing where it's explained elsewhere. Therefore, it has no obvious illumination from the divine light. Because it's not a vessel, therefore, the divine light doesn't shine in it. Rather, the divine light is in a state of exile within them. And therefore, the third point is true. The Sitra therefore, is not subservient to God. So because it's not a vessel, the light doesn't shine into it. And because the light doesn't shine into it, it's not subservient to it. One, two, three. All three points. My goal is to explain what we're learning in contemporary language and then to go back and show you what it says in the text. It's very important to study, I think, I think, to study it in a way that we really can wrap our heads around what is going on here. The end goal here is this paragraph. This is really what all of this is about. It's to understand that in life there are two realities in front of us. There are the things that are holy Things that are unholy. The things that we're supposed to be engaged in and the things that we're not supposed to be engaged in. And the difference is not just a little bit of this, a little bit. It's not, it's not subtle. It's not a fine distinction. It's a major distinction. The difference between the realm of holiness and the realm of, of, of unholiness, of Sitra Akra, is like the difference between life and death. Because in the realm of holiness... The holiness, the realm itself is a vessel. The light of, the, of God is shining and therefore the, the vessel itself is now transparent to it. God's light is illuminating its work. It's, it's that symbiote, it's that close relationship and God is there in an obvious way. And in the Sitra Akra, that's life, right? Because God equals life. God is the only true life. That's where life is. And what about Sitra Akra? God created it. It definitely exists. It's definitely there. There's no doubt that that is there. That is definitely there. That choice for evil is absolutely there. 
That thing is absolutely there. But is it alive? Is it really alive? Yeah, it exists. It exists. But is it alive? Is it dynamic? Does it have vitality? How will you feel about it the next day? That's always a good question, right? How do you, does it energize you or does it sap your energy? Right? Is it like a vampire that just sucks the energy or does it actually inspire you? That's the difference between the realm of holiness and the other side. The realm of holiness, when you step into it, it's not always easy. It's not always the more glamorous option. Sometimes it's hard to commit to what's good and holy and godly. It's not easy. But when we jump into that space, it's alive and it's light and it's bright and it's beautiful and it energizes our souls. When we walk into the other spaces, it might feel good temporarily, right? But then later on, it's like, I give out, what did I do? That's not making me a better person. That's not making me feel better. That doesn't give me more energy. Nothing of that. In fact, it only creates, hopefully not, but it can only create, you know, a, a, a downward spiral into more of that and needing more of that, which is, uh, which is, not, which is not ideal. So the point is, that there are things in life or there in, in this world, there are things that are holy, which means that God is right there. And there are things that are unholy in Sidra which means that, yeah, God created it, but it's kind of like the anti, I don't know, the anti-creation. It's created, but it's, the energy is not flowing through it in an obvious way. So if we're given the choice between the spaces that have the energy and the spaces that don't have the energy, why wouldn't we choose the spaces that have the energy to be connected? It's a beautiful thing. I want to end off with a story that I love. I've told it before. It's a story <laughs> that goes back to Russia. When Chassidim, when Chabad was headquartered in Russia or White Russia, Belarus, whatever it was. So, you know, when you go to mikvah, so many Hasidic men have the custom to go to mikvah every single day. Why? Because a mikvah is a purifying body of water, so no matter how, you know, how hard we try to, to put ourselves in, a, you know, in, in, in holy spaces, but we could always use a little bit more purification. So many men have a custom to go every morning before prayers to, to a mikvah. Now in Russia, you didn't have necessarily fancy schmancy mikvahs like we have here you know, in, in, in the Western world today beautiful mikvahs that are like spas almost, like really gorgeous facilities, right? Back then, you had a lake, yeah? And in the winter, you know what your lake was? It was frozen. And you know what the Jews were called then? The frozen chosen. I'm kidding. They, that's what the Jews of Alaska were called. But um, sometimes you would have a mikvah. Your mikvah was a lake and your lake was frozen. So what do you do? So you take uh, a chisel and, or a hammer, whatever it is, you break the ice you jump in, you jump out. So one, one time, this father decides to take his kid to the frozen, to the frozen mikvah. I, this is the story that's told. It may be a parable. It may be a true story. I don't know. Certainly, I don't. I, I, this is not parenting advice. Do, please do not take this as good parenting advice. This is the story that's told. So this father takes his son to a mikvah, to, to the, to the frozen, frozen lake. 
And they break, he breaks the ice, and the father goes in, and the father, okay. And then he takes his son, who is probably, I don't know, 9, 10, whatever. And he helps him into the water, and then he quickly pulls him out. And the child says, ah, he's like screaming because of the cold. And then the father wraps him in a nice warm towel, fluffy towel. And the child says, ah. So the father later told the child in life, there's always the oohs and the ahs. The question is which comes first and which comes second. And depending on which comes first and which comes second, that will determine whether that was a good thing or not a good thing. So he says, he's, the father said to his son like this, the good things typically start off with an ooh, right? It's hard. It's hard to do the right thing. But then ultimately it's ah, thank God, right? Ah, it was a good thing. But, like the mikvah thing, right? The oof, and then the ah, it was warm. It's cold, and then it was... But the, when it's the other way around, you have to be careful. When, it's, when initially it's ah, it's amazing, and then later on it's ooh, it's not good. That's usually when, when it means that it wasn't, um, it wasn't the holiest experience to engage in. So, the moral of the story is, we should always endeavor to have the oohs first and the ahs later and not the ah first and the ooh later, or oohs later. Make sense? This is the Kabbalah of oohs and ahs. <laughs> Who would have thought? All right, in summation, I want to kind of bring together everything we spoke about today. In summation, we learned today what I think is incredible wisdom, Kabbalistic wisdom on relationships, both human and divine. In other words, information that can help us in our relationships with our fellow human beings, whether family, friends or strangers, and also wisdom that can help us relate better to our source, to God. So number one, as we relate to others, whether we are the giver or the receiver, whatever the dynamic is, in a conversation, if we're doing the talking or we're doing the listening, in a business, if we're doing the instructing or we're doing the following, whatever it is, whatever dynamic it is, the idea here is that we play a symbiotic role. There's no such thing as just a giver or just a receiver. The receiver affects the giver. The giver affects the receiver. The listener triggers the, the talker. Everything affects the other. We don't live on islands. We don't live isolated. We live in concert with each other, which is very important. And that means, and here's like a big idea that comes out of all of this. When we see somebody in our lives that's not doing, you know, that's not as we would like them to be. I want to keep it vague. I don't want to give any specific, you know, I don't want to make it too, you know, literal. But if we, whether it's a child or a parent or a spouse, whatever it is, somebody is not in, in this relationship dynamic is not, the energy is not the way we would like it to be. Kabbalah says, look inside. The first step is how can I shift my energy and how will that then influence their energy? Because the idea is, it's easy to blame the other. If they would only listen, if they would only this, if they would only that, it's easy to blame the other. But what we learned today is, it's always working. The flow of energy works back and forth. So if I want something to shift in this relationship dynamic, even if I could blame, you know, blame the other, number one, there's no point. Number two, it's not true. It's not ultimately true. Yes, it takes two to tango, obviously, but... The, when I shift my energy, that will have an effect on the other. 
whether it's me as a receiver shifting the energy of the giver or me as the giver shifting the energy of the receiver. It works both ways. So if I'm the, if I'm the listener, I can evoke more giving, right, by being more open. If I'm the giver, I can tell a joke. I don't mean to simplify it, right? But I can shift my energy to open up the other and to make, it, to make them more receptive. So this is point number one in my, in my, in my uh, summary of today's class. Kabbalah teaches us the power that we have in relationship dynamics. We should never feel powerless, like, what can I do? I can't do it. It's, you know, they're not doing this and that, and there's no point to blame, and there's no point to therefore give up and abdicate power. We each have tremendous influence in our relationships, which we should use wisely and only for good. So that's point number one. Point number two is in our relationship with God. The more we are open to our source, the more the light can come into our lives. Literally, that's what we said today. The more we are open to the source, to the light of God, the more that light can flood into us. When we are closed spiritually, and again, it's not, not judgment or anything, but when we ourselves feel like we're a little bit closed, maybe we're a little bit jaded or cynical or a little bit down or a little bit, you know, whatever it is, whatever is the, the emotion that's going on at the time. But when we're a little bit closed, the light doesn't have space to shine in. The light, and if the light doesn't have an entry point, it may pull back, as we said today, right? The light itself may retract the drop. But when we're open, suddenly the light floods in. This is why, and this is a truth in life, and you can probably relate, I'm sure you have your own way to relate this in your own personal experience. When we are open to miracles, suddenly we notice the miracles happening. When we're open to divine providence, which is another whole topic, but when we're open to seeing God's hand in orchestrating events, suddenly we see that happening. Suddenly it happens. Why? Because we've made the vessel. So if we want a blessing in our lives, whatever it is, and we can't seem to be getting that blessing, remember, we have influence in this relationship. And the question is for ourselves, not how come God is not giving me the blessing. The question is for me, how do I open my vessel? How do I open up a little bit more to the blessing that I wish to receive? I thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. I hope you found it to be meaningful. I hope you enjoyed it. And I want to let you know that I value very deeply our opportunities to study together. And I uh, tremendously want to thank each and every one of you for being here this morning and every Sunday for our study sessions. And um, it's very meaningful and very, very special. Um, Jolina, you're welcome. Is this your, uh, remind me, is this your first time joining or you've been here before for Kabbalah and coffee? First time. Fantastic. Where are you from? If you don't mind me asking. Are you from Atlanta? Tulsa, Oklahoma. Amazing. We got Oklahoma representing. That's awesome. That is awesome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. All right, good. All right, well, we're back next week. Same bad time. Oh, you used to live near Atlanta for a couple years. Okay, super cool. Good. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that, we've, uh, that we're connecting now. It's amazing. It's amazing. Thank you very much. 
Amazing, amazing class. It, Pleasure. It's, it's so amazing to see how to understand and to feel and to connect really change the life. Yeah. It's so important. And, and, we, and when we teach somebody or it's, it's so important to be focused that, that it's a relationship that yes. we need the vessel. And, and sometimes we teach and we don't understand if you put everything to, to, to teach in the, in the great way, but you, you see that for a reason, the student doesn't understand so well. Now it's so clear because you, ha you have to prepare. It's like when you, you want to put like a plant in a, in a, in a garden, you have to prepare the, the place. Right, and right. Yeah, for that. Thank you very much. Pleasure. I, I, and along those lines, I have to share this because I just got goosebumps because the very, the discourse, the Hasidic discourse that the previous Rebbe said at the Rebbe's wedding was all about this idea, was all about the dynamic of a relationship. And it speaks about it in Kabbalistic terminology, but it was literally at a wedding. It was a wedding mimer, the wedding discourse. And it's the wedding discourse that Chabad grooms typically memorize by heart and say right before the wedding ceremony. It's recited by the um, Chabad grooms by heart, typically by heart, um, before the wedding. And it talks about this, exactly what we spoke about today, but exactly the way you said it also, about the dynamic, you know, the relationship dynamic of, of, of giving, receiving, of, of, but also understanding the role in helping the other whoever it is and whatever it is, right? It's so easy to say, well, this is my role, this is your role, you're not doing your role, we're done. The point is, not, it's, we have to help the other in their role, they help us in our role, and that's where the symbiotic relationship comes in. So we want to make a difference to someone else in someone else's life. It's not as simple as saying, you know, here's the wisdom, here's the information, run with it. It's about developing the trust, developing the openness, it's a, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to create that, but it's well worth it. And, the, um, and I'm glad that it resonated. And I think it's really important. I think some of, some of what we spoke about today is some of the most impactful, practical ideas or, or, or you know, pound for pound match up to some of the most impactful and, and, and relevant teachings in Kabbalah that you can find. So I'm very grateful to uh, have the opportunity to study this with all of you. Yes, Donna, go ahead. So can you uh, give some insights how tomorrow's series, which I registered for, um, is going to, how we can view it vis-a-vis -vis what we learn in Journey of the Soul and today's discussion? So that's a good question. So tomorrow, so tomorrow night, yeah, thanks, thanks for asking. So Kabbalah of the Future, he's going to be speaking about scientific discovery or what we might, what we might call the stuff of science fiction, you know, time travel. Teleportation, that means like moving instantly from one place to another place. Um, body regeneration. He'll be speaking about the concepts from a place of science, advancements in science that kind of are touching on these ideas and concepts, and then exploring the Kabbalah of these concepts and showing how spiritually these concepts are not so far-fetched, and at least on the spiritual side of it, maybe not you know manifest in a physical way yet, but spiritually, how these are, these, are, um, these are paralleled. Now, I can't, I mean, that's, that's as far as I know about what he's going to speak about. But I haven't heard these talks. 
And um, I'm excited to learn. I'll be on tomorrow night as well. So I'm going to be excited to learn what he has to teach. I do know this. He's a great scholar and he's got a lot to share. So it's going to be very exciting. Um, how is it different? It's, it, I think it's more of a, of a, of a you know, in the realm of, of science, it's kind of like looking at uh, scientific dynamics through the lens of Kabbalah, which I think is really cool. So is it vastly different from what we do in other classes? Not necessarily. It's, I think it's similar, but the, but the topics will be different topics. So it'll be a lot of fun. Um, okay, good. Good, good, good. Right, got, got, got one last question? Yeah, yeah, one more. <clears throat> All right. So um, when we are, uh, you know, we're praying to our uh, our guardian angels, our deceased uh, loved ones, and and then we say, well, they're only uh, ascending for eleven months, <clears throat> but <clears throat> they're kind of with us the rest of our lives. Um, sometimes we can feel them. Sometimes we don't. Usually they come back during uh, yard sites. Um, if those souls get reincarnated, are they still in heaven? <clears throat> or is that just uh, the unfinished um, parts of their souls that break off and come back? Yeah, it's, it's, it's B. So, so it's very important, and the Rebbe emphasizes this in letters, uh, um, and some of them we quoted in the, in the course so far. It's not, it's not that we can still have a relationship. It's, there's no... The relationship essentially is still there. In other words, it's um, the only limitation is our perception. But objectively, the relationship, the soul bond is still there. Nothing changes with the actual connection. The only possible change is our perception of the relationship, right? But not, not the reality of the relationship. So, but I know that wasn't your question. Your question is, well, what about reincarnation? Does that mean that now that soul now has another life that it's living and now somehow is now disconnected? The answer is no. That soul, that original soul, is absolutely still, still who it is and what it is and remains. It's only that the soul sparks that weren't yet um, fulfilled, they, it's not even they're separated out. They generate a new soul that carries forth a similar mission of, the, of those unfulfilled sparks. It's like the, the example that, I, that, that I've used is when you light one candle from another candle, the first flame doesn't disappear. It's not like some parts of the flame are now in the second one and the first flame is diminished. It doesn't, the first flame is not diminished at all. The fire is still the same fire, but now you have a second fire. So the first soul lights a new soul, which then carries forth some of the unfinished purpose and mission of that first soul, but that original soul remains what it is, who it is, how it is, and remains as connected with its loved ones as before. Again, it's really important to emphasize, it's not, it's not that the soul, I'm not talking about the reincarnation part, I'm talking about the, the, the original, the first part of your, of your question. It's not that the soul is now a different type of soul, but you could still connect with it. No, 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 no. Same soul. The only possible limitation is our perception. The only limitation is if we think that anything changed. That's the only thing that gets in the way is our perception of the truth. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean anything changed. Because even now, we can't see souls. We see souls through the body. You can't see a soul. I mean, you can sense it. But again, that's just, that's just a limitation of, of perception. It's not of the reality. More, more to speak about this topic, certainly, 
Um, but I'm going to let everybody go. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful start of the week. I hope that the ground has been tilled a little bit so that we're open to the beauty and the, the, the light that is all around us in our lives and in the world. And may we have the miracles that we all need this week in an obvious and open way. Shalom. See you all. See you soon. Take care, everybody. Bye. Pleasure, pleasure. Great to see everybody. Take care. Shavuot Tov.